0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, everyone. It's Leah. This week, I'm sharing a best-of conversation with my friend who stays in the deep end, Darren K. Roberts. He's the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas, a top voice in sports on LinkedIn, and he's pretty darn inspiring. I started our conversation about waging war against your own status quo with how a visit to a football camp was the plot twist that took Darren from aspiring politician to football coach. Here we go. Hey everyone, I'm Leah Smart and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. Hey, everyone. This week, I sat down with Darren K. Roberts. He's a former NFL and college coach who serves as the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. And LinkedIn named Darren as the number one top voice in sports in 2020. Now, Darren caught my attention because I was wondering, how does a Harvard Law School grad end up coaching football? You'll hear more about the how in the episode, so I won't spoil the fun. But Darren ended up serving coaching since with the Kansas City Chiefs the Detroit Lions, the West Virginia Mountaineers, and the Cleveland Browns. Through the center he founded, Robert teaches a course called A Game Plan for Winning at Life. It is the most sought-after course at the school. His research and the context for the class revolve around issues of rejection, failure management, student-athlete financial literacy, and leadership. And his students learn by doing, so they get real-life assignments to face rejection, like going to Starbucks and asking for a free drink, or dealing with hardship by having a conversation with someone they care about that they know is going to be tough. He also teaches vulnerability, and ultimately, he is leading them to become the leaders of their own lives. Darren is seriously a wealth of knowledge and great metaphors, as you'll hear. We talked a lot about what it looks like to wage war against the status quo, one of my favorite Darrenisms from the conversation, but also how we can all be creators and why that serves the greater good. And when we need to stop asking for permission and just start giving notification. His work is about waking up, embracing discomfort, and staying in the deep end just a little bit longer for the sake of what you want. Enjoy.
1: Who did you want to be before the experts got involved?
0: Darren, I was really intrigued by your story around getting into the NFL, and I wonder if you can just share that before we jump into anything else.
1: Yes, absolutely. So since the age of seven, I had a dream of becoming governor of Texas, and and this is something that I thought I was going to go into politics. My parents were involved in politics in East Texas with the local NAACP chapter, and I go to undergrad, check the boxes student body president, University of Texas was the largest university in the US. Check the box, take the LSAT so I'm going to go to law school, apply to Harvard law school and I don't get accepted, I don't get rejected, I get waitlisted. And you know the the letter said something to the effect of and I'm paraphrasing, you know, we like you. We unfortunately like so many more people more than we like you and so unless all of those people turn us down You know, we may reach back out to you, but if you have any other options for law school, then we highly advise you to take them. So this is how you land on the wait list, right? I take a job with Senator Joe Lieberman for two years in D.C. Don't want to be there, but it's I'm there during September the 11th, and I get this front row seat to governance that... I could never have imagined or forecasted and you know one of the things we're gonna be talking about is this nonlinear life and what do you do when you walk into a cul-de-sac and and I think one of the the big takeaways for me is you glean and soak up as much as you can and all of those lessons tend to add value and help you during the next part of your journey so I go to the Kennedy School. I'm still reapplying to Harvard Law School. I get waitlisted four times, finally get in, start law school in 04. I'm doing the law school thing, which is study, read, take exams, work at law firms during the summer. And my last summer of law school, one of my high school buddies whom I played football with asked me to go to a football camp with him at the University of South Carolina. I go. The head coach asked for a volunteer, and I say yes. I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know anything about how to coach football. I had played in high school, didn't play in college, but I had the best three days of my life working with 66th graders at the University of South Carolina, figuring it out by watching YouTube videos of Deion Sanders and you know, buying a, a whistle and a, and a bucket hat and sunglasses. But I noticed it was the first time in my life that I did not have to set my alarm clock to get up. And this is something for folks listening. You know, I think it's very rare that we we sit with our emotions and we sit with the things that move us. We kind of notice it, but then we go on to the next calendar entry. And I really sat with that feeling of I don't know what it is about coaching, but this is something I need to do sooner rather than later. I wrote a letter to every team in the NFL. There are 32 of them, received 31 rejections. Herm Edwards, Kansas City Chiefs calls me on April the 13th, 2007 and says, don't know why you want to do this. Happen to read your letter. I've got a training camp internship for you. No pay, no benefits, 18 hour days, and you need to get here as soon as you graduate. So I said, sign me up graduate June 7th, 07, celebrate with my family, took my diploma from Dean Atlanta Kagan, handed it to my parents and told them to take it back home for safekeeping and drove my 2002 Tahoe from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Kansas City, Missouri and started my career as a training camp intern. And so that's that's how it began.
0: I love that you talk about sitting with the feeling. What was the feeling?
1: You know, sport sport by no means is a panacea. And I think that oftentimes we, we glorify what it means to be in a competitive landscape with teammates as sort of this magical space where everyone emerges as a better human and as a leader. And there are some real difficulties with sport. I think one of the things that's really difficult is that sport is usually the canary that gives society An indication of where we really are on issues, whether it's gender or sexual orientation or race. It is through the lens of sport. And we can think about Muhammad Ali and Billie Jean King and Naomi Osaka, Colin Kaepernick, obviously. This is where we find out where we are as a society. And so I just felt while I was coaching these young men who were from look, they were from every SES level. They were from suburbs and small towns and urban centers, different races, religions. But there are these very brief moments, and I'm I'm speaking in the football context, but there are these very brief moments on a football field where race, SES, where your parents shop for groceries, all of that flies out the window and you just have you have eleven guys trying to execute a play, and I think it was seeing that up front and close. It triggered something that I felt when I was a high school football player, and I just had this nagging feeling that I needed to be a part of that narrative.
0: I've played some team sports, <laughs> but but truly, I've been I've been a runner, so I haven't been you know, deeply in that space of being on a team. But I, I somehow also know exactly what you're talking about. And it's something I've thought about when I watch football. I've grown up watching football. The one word that comes to mind for me is hope. Mm. When you start talking about that, is that what it felt like? Was like, what What was it like to see that? What draw, drew, or you said it triggered a feeling like, what was it?
1: You know, in many ways, and, and being perfectly honest with you, in 2006, when I was working that camp, I was probably more hopeful than I am sitting and talking with you in 2021. I think that it felt to me, whereas before I viewed my value add to society through the lens of public service. And if I'm honest, brutally honest, it really was from the position of a title. I'm going to be governor of Texas. I'm going to be a state senator from my home district. And that's my stepping stone to the governor's mansion, right? And and so those were not altruistic reasons that I wanted to get into politics, but there was something very authentic and genuine and raw about the interactions that I both watched between football players and the ones that I was engendering with the the young men that I would I was teaching and coaching, there are conversations and this isn't during the confines of a four quarter game, but while you're on the sidelines or in the locker room or walking back to the dorms, like, there are these settings in which I think people who would normally would not get together are in very close proximity and they're forced to find a way to bridge gaps. And that was special to me. And I knew there was something in me that said, don't turn this into, oh, I'll coach after I retire. Bring this into the present tense and do this now.
0: So you have this weekend that totally shifts what you're thinking about in your life. And you go back to your family and your friends and you're like, all right. Just kidding about this whole direction of becoming, you know, the a state politician and you know having this title and this position. What happens?
1: I talked to my parents, and I was twenty six at the time. So when I called them, I wasn't calling them for permission, and I recited this conversation with them. This was more of a notification, right? And I, I, I thought I at least owed it to them. To give them uh, sort of a sense of where I was, and you know they pushed back a bit because and this is this is a point that I really want to get across. I think the dominant thought among you know those of us who have college degrees or advanced degrees is that you spend all this time and money for this credential and to venture away from whatever the next position is that you're supposed to get with it. If you venture off track, you've wasted time and money. Most of us understand the notion of sunk cost, but we very rarely practice the understanding that you can't get the time, you can't get the money back. So make the best decision in the moment. And so there was a little bit of that that seeped into the equation. My dad's been a Baptist minister for 43 years. And so one thing I kind of pushed back on our conversation a bit, I said, You know, every Sunday in the Mount Olive Baptist Church at about 12, 28 p.m., you are telling people that they don't know when they're going to die. And so they need to make a decision about their soul today. Like there is a fierce sense of urgency in Christianity. And I said, you know, Dad, I don't know when the end is for me. So why would I put this off? You know, because everyone will tell you, oh, you can do that when you retire. And one thing I know is once you get into the rat race of life, it becomes increasingly more difficult for you to opt out. And I didn't want to give myself the chance to to be in a position where I didn't have the willpower to get off. So I decided to jump off early.
0: A lot of what, what I'm seeing, and particularly in tech, this conversation is being pushed around the great reshuffle and the great resignation. <laughs> And the great resignation is, and what I've been, you know, reading, especially articles keep coming out and coming out and particularly now focus on millennials, which are the largest generation that's in the working world today. And that a lot of them are just saying, I'm not even reshuffling and going somewhere else. I'm leaving and I'm taking a break. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is like, not just taking a break, but I'm also thinking about what I really want. and. My, my little heart sings because it sounds like what people and what I'm hearing is people are looking for a sense of meaning and purpose. And I wonder what role that's played for you as you've made each of your leaps.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is the sense that I get from COVID. COVID forced us in the lockdowns, the quarantines forced us to mm-hmm. reckon with issues that we either didn't have the appetite or the, the desire to deal with about race there wouldn't have been the same post floyd reaction in a world in which everyone gets up and goes to work at eight o'clock when it relates to work people sat and they thought to themselves yeah i think prior to COVID, people said you know i'm sure i could probably do this job from home or in a hybrid world and they would go to the employers and the employers say oh well we don't have a model really and we need to kind of study this a little bit more and then you have 16 months of data that now companies have at their disposal. So now I can see how Darren or Daria has done for the last 16 months. And the problem is that the data was was too good. Productivity didn't slip, <laughs> right? So companies are now saying, hey, come back. I think the smart companies understood, look, first of all, there's, there's a cost savings here. And this has forced us to make a move that we should have made earlier. Some companies take it personally, like you... You need to come back by a certain date. We need you in the office. And a lot of folks are saying, "Nah, I'm good. And I think they're either saying either one, I can do as good of a job here as I can there or two, I'm just going to opt out and do something else because they've had to sit with the feeling of what does it feel like to not make the commute, to not have to deal with people that you really don't want to deal with on a daily basis. The W-2 in many ways has been dismantled and I'm not sure if it will fully heal over time. You know, when I look at the data, the fastest growing profession right now is is the creator. So the independent creator, which excites me, especially when I think of it through a racial lens, because if you don't want to engage in a world in which you think is not welcoming to you, you now at the at the touch of a thumb have instant access to billions of customers. It is a permissionless society that we live in. And it's empowering in so many ways. And I think a lot of people are grabbing. They've seen enough. They felt enough to know that this is something that they need to build out and really cultivate.
0: I love that you're sharing that there's a new avenue that's been created as the perception of the corporate job that takes you all the way to retirement. You know, even if you switch Thirty times in your career, that there's still there's now this new avenue that's not just that, and I think this is really common. I want to caveat this is probably most common amongst people like you shared earlier, who you know have gotten college degrees and been told, okay, we paid for your degree. Now you need to go make sure that it's worth what we did was worth it. If your parents, you're lucky enough to have your parents pay, and if you're not, you're just trying to pay off your student loans. But there is this new avenue of independent creators who is who which is growing immensely. One of the things you've said a few times is there are moments where you're not asking anymore for permission. And I wonder if you might shed some light on what you believe is going on for people who feel like they need it and what advice that you'd give them.
1: I think there are several vantage points. You know, if you are, if you are single, I and mean, let's say that you've been through some college, you know, first of all, I mean, I teach at the university of Texas. I teach my class right now, I have 200 bubbly freshmen in, in my course, and I tell them day one that from pre-K to the 12th grade, education has built them to care about the metrics more than the meaning, right? So AP scores, ACT scores, SAT scores, GPAs, what's your ranking? What percentage are you in of your graduating class? I mean, this is, the, this is the world in which young people are measured. And all for what? What's the best college that you can get into? What is the school that's going to wow the most number of people when you tell them that you are here? And then what happens? Well, you go to college and you pick a major. And then if you're the typical American, you run up so much debt such that you need to go to a place in which you can cover your debt service, which tends to be corporate America. And once you get to corporate America, you know, OKRs and KPIs, I mean, it never ends. It never ends. So you've been primed for this. And and really, I've always believed in this kind of collusive nature between corporate America and higher ed such that this has to be the avenue. So if you are thinking about creating something and, and listen, I think it's such a beautiful struggle for the person who is doing this thing, maybe on the side You know, maybe they're drawing or they're doing music. I have one of my students who does like knitting for animals. Like she will make these custom made we don't have any pets. Well, we have a a hamster that I ignore here, but
0: she doesn't make sweaters for hamsters. She she doesn't make sweaters (laughs) for hamsters, right?
1: But I looked at her Shopify site and she showed me some receipts and she's generating close to six figures. And she's an engineering major. And she says to me, and this is the refrain that I've heard for seven years of teaching. You know what, Professor Roberts, my parents sent me here to do X, but I really want to do Y. So the person who is the creator is really going through the struggle of the people around me, especially if they're older than I am, are on the 30-year pension 401k, you know, retirement party, give you a clock that you're never going to use. They're in that mindset, and they can't fathom a world in which one can sit in their home and spend 10 hours on Twitch and generate X number of dollars, right? So there's this disconnect. And so there's, it's difficult because we don't wanna let people down. And I always say, you know, at the end of the day, I am going to die with me. I went to a lot of funerals because my dad was a Baptist minister. And so I would he would take me with him. And I just was always struck by this real sense of mortality. And when it's over, like you're done. Here's what I know. I would rather be the person who 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 ventured into this creative life because I felt that I needed to and found that it didn't work for me and then ventured back into the typical track. I'd rather be that person than the one who sits on the conveyor belt and thinks and tries to make that next move, but doesn't. That's the life I want to live. And I know it's difficult And so I think for people who maybe have children or significant others, I mean, listen, mortgages and and private school tuition and keeping up with the neighbors across the street who just got the latest Tesla. I mean, this whole consumption game also puts another layer of pressure because each layer provides a little less latitude to make a move from a numbers perspective. So I know the struggle is real.
0: I very much resonate with that. In my own experience, I I did that already. And then Mm. when I realized that I was putting, you know, you talk about how higher ed and corporate America are sort of in line, right? Like just replace metrics with job title over meaning, right? Like, Mm. you know, it's like, that's where I was headed was, you know, what titles can I get? How far can I go? And how much success can I have? And then went, wait a minute none of this has any meaning and so i had to i had to let go of a lot of these things a lot of these games i was playing around consumption and it was really hard but i will say i was happier in my couple years of really releasing that than i'd ever been in my you know first seven years in corporate america just pushing for better and better titles and more and more money
1: yeah you know the longer you live on this planet the one thing you start to realize is that titles make for very poor traveling companions. At every pivot, at every left turn, right turn, there's always this nagging feeling, well, if I can just get this position, if I can just become VP of marketing, if I can just become head coach, if I just become X, then all of my worries will go away. And as the great philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. said, more no money, more problems.
0: But seriously.
1: It, you know, when people say, oh, well, you can say that. And, and this, this works all the way up the economic ladder. With each rung, a different set of problems arrive. And I always say, listen, at least if I'm going to welcome more problems, I want to welcome them doing something that I love.
0: That's right.
1: If the problems are going to be, if, that, if those are a constant in the equation of life, you want them to be ones that you have helped to manufacture and are actually happy. Right? The craft makes you happy. You've got me going, Lee. I'm going to say this too. We don't need as much as we think we need. You know, Brene Brown says that the opposite of scarcity is not abundance, it's, it's enough. enough. And so really, and I don't want to get too Marie Kondo on people, but like really diagnose your balance sheet and say, and this is what I think COVID really revealed for some people, like how much of this stuff do I really need? Because that financial constraint is 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 really, when you take it in the aggregate and look at your life, oftentimes that's the very thing that's holding you back from the pivot.
0: When we get back, Darren explains how the exercise and vulnerability he uses with his students can help you level up. That's after break.
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: And we're back with Darren K. Roberts. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about a few things. You know, you talk a lot about staying in the deep end has been your has been your hashtag. And part of what this show is about is exploring the vulnerable aspects of the human experience, right? So ex- inspiring transformation, but really being honest about the tough things that happen. And so we're talking about some of these tough things. What does staying in the deep end mean for you? And what do you want it to mean for other people?
1: Yeah, when I think about staying in the deep end, what it means is Embracing just enough personal discomfort that you feel challenged at doing your craft. So I always tell my students, listen, if you if you apply for a job and you can check off every box in terms of prerequisites, this is not the right job for you. You need to, as soon as you hit the submit button, think to yourself, I'm not sure if they're going to buy it. You know, I have some of the skills, but there are some that I need to, you know, I need, I need to level up on because those environments are the ones where we learn because we're forced to learn, right? You know, staying in the deep end means creating before you have an audience. How many writers out there will we never get a chance to consume because you know what I call the self-defeating stories, those narratives that play in your mind while you're writing the short story or or trying to put the, the, the lyrics to music? They can really drown out, and I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm I'm writing my third book, and this is my first sort of venture into fiction. And at 3:45 in the morning, when I get up and write, I can I can hear those voices in the back, like fiction isn't what you do. This character isn't really exciting, right? So that's why whenever a creator walks out of their cave and brings something to the public, I just acknowledge the bravery that it that it takes to show people, hey, this is what I've done. Yeah,
0: This is me. Right? In so <laughs> many ways. This is me. Yeah.
1: It's a very vulnerable act, and it's tough to get to the point to where you really feel comfortable doing it. But once you do it, this is the thing, right? It's the gateway drug. Once you do the thing, I'm just convinced that you will find your people, whatever your thing is, however odd it feels, or people say there's not... There's a community for everything on the planet, and even if you get one person that that buys the thing or reads the free copy, that's all you need. Mm-hmm. That's all you need to keep going.
0: And I'll add too, because I'm also a writer, and I get this feeling of the the vulnerability every time, every time. But you never know who you're inspiring to embrace their own vulnerability and their own. It could not. It could be something completely different than writing. They could be going to knit you know, hamster sweaters, but you know, (laughs) they're embracing like deep in my heart, this is what I want. And just something about seeing you do this made me realize I'm going to go do it. And that is also such a deep experience of fulfillment and a moment to go, wow, like each of us are so powerful.
1: Yes. And even with the grammatical errors and the mismatched patterns and the seams that don't quite, like, this is the thing is that, you know, the older I get, the, the more spiritual I become and the less religious i am but I think about this notion of like this creator and like how we there's some there's some residue of creation on all of us and so we're actually i, I believe we're, we're born to create in some way and the empowerment that we have of just showing people this thing whatever it may be you know i would just say for the listeners out there where whether you're on the subway or Riding a horse in East Texas, bring this thing to life. After you do it once, and you know, sometimes there'll be crickets, and you're like, oh man, that was tough. But it's a gateway drug, you won't be able to stop.
0: Darren, when you talk about spirituality, you brought me back to Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. And when she wrote The Gifts, she had done a number of different, you know, research kind of projects around how we embrace life in a really vulnerable way. And one of the things she came up with was a new definition of spirituality that shifted how I looked at it and actually not even shifted. It actually, I read it and it felt like coming home. This is her definition from the research. So it's not hers, it's people's. Spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and to one another is grounded in love and compassion. Practicing spirituality brings a sense of perspective, meaning, and purpose to our lives. And she goes on to say that, you know, people said they found their spirituality... The same level in a fishing hole, as in a church, as on a trail, as reading a book.
1: You know, I do believe that the creator taps into something. I mean, look, I'm I'm thinking through the perspective of a creator. You know, it is a solitary craft, even when we're working in groups, right? I say like a a band, for example. But it is a solitary craft to put something together that didn't exist three seconds ago. And it comes out of you, whether it's through your pen, keyboard, whatever it may be. And so tapping into that, but then also recognizing that by virtue of creation, you are manufacturing another tool with which humanity can connect with you. It bears the spirit of who you are. And we all crave connection, the arts, music. And this is why it has an eternal grip on people because it's someone's residue and i think oftentimes the creators kind of get a it becomes a derisive term like oh okay so you're you're trying to be gary Vee or like pump out 25 posts a day and have a funnel that leads to xyz and i, I really wanted to take it back to a, a very raw form like this making of something for the sake of making it because you can't i'm going to use a double negative that my 12th grade english teacher would not <laughs> condone. You can't not make it. <laughs> James McBride, one of my favorite authors, talks about how these characters just invade his body. Like, he, like they won't leave him alone until he puts them into the form of a book. And I think if we sit and listen and kind of take our, our, our emotional and our spiritual temperature more, we'll find that there are other things that want to get out.
0: So, you teach a course at UT called Game Plan for Winning at Life. What do we have to know about that course? I don't want to spoil <laughs> it for your students or for people who are thinking about going to UT or can't wait to get into your class, but what do we have to know about that that you and I haven't talked about already?
1: When I returned to Austin in 2014, I'd just been fired from the Cleveland Browns, and I reached out and the dean said, Hey, we'd love to have you come teach a course. I sat in my office and I asked myself, what are the things that I wish I had learned as an undergraduate that I didn't? And things like vulnerability and empathy, self-care, implicit bias, resilience, failure management, financial literacy. That was on my list. And I thought, man, this is a hodgepodge of stuff But you know what? This is one of those times in my life where I'm not gonna take someone else's template or syllabus. I'm just gonna craft this the way I want it. Again, this creator, so I'm kind of rolling the syllabus out and like showing it to students. Like, I don't know if you're gonna be into this stuff, but I'm into it. And now it's one of the uh, most sought after classes at UT. And we have a waiting list every semester. I have 200 students. It was capped at 200.
0: I'm giving you snaps.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yes. Pray for me to, to whomever you subscribe, 200 freshmen. I love them all, but I'm definitely earning my, my, my paltry check as a, as a lecturer. But we just dive deep into the research, but then every, each one of those concepts, we have a practice. So with rejection, I send them out into the world in pairs and they have to ask for something, ask for a free drink at Starbucks, ask a stranger for five bucks. And their, their partner videotapes them and then we watch it. Together, we talk about the anxiety right before you make the ask, the eye contact. You know, how could we have made the conversation longer? So everything has a, has a practice. Vulnerability, I have them walk across campus in pairs. One of them is blindfolded, and they have to be led by the other. And then they switch roles. We talk about what that feels like. i would tell you this. This is the stuff that makes life go. One thing I found out, you can always find someone to build a spreadsheet. And you can always find someone to run the numbers and do your taxes. Like, I think we get so quant and metric driven that we put such a primacy on those areas of study. But when you're having a breakdown at the age of 29 because you didn't get the promotion, those things don't, they're not the bridge to the next part of your life. And so that's, that's what I, I choose to spend my time focusing on.
0: I love it. I mean, the fact that you have a wait list tells me people want it. What do you see happens when they leave? What's different about them?
1: It's amazing because I've now taught it for seven years. So I have people who are out there in the world doing things, you know, graduates now. And I will get emails from students who said, hey, I just I just got my first rejection. I didn't get the promotion that I wanted. But I remember the Kristen Neff article on self-compassion and I'm going through the exercises. Or I had a student who was fortunate enough to make it to the pros and he's in the NFL. And so one of the things that I do with some of the athletes in the course is I talk about having the difficult conversations now rather than later. And so they have to talk with their parents as freshmen about what their expectations will be around their first contract if they make it. And so he is actually, you know, I know this is always going to be, I mean, it, it's an exercise for, for all the athletes. 1% of them will make it. This, he was in the 1%. And he said, you know, I remember when I went home during the Christmas break and I had to talk to my mom about the fact that I wasn't going to buy her a home with my first contract, but my hope was the second contract, I was going to save enough to help her on the down payment until the second contract. And he said, now I just signed my first contract And there's such relief because we have an understanding of what my vision was for what I would do with it. And those are the kind of things, you know, those don't show up on, um, there's no metric, there's no U.S. News and World Report ranking or indicator for it. But I have a treasure trove of letters and emails that every time I get one of them, I have to remind myself to email the dean and say, okay, I know I said I wasn't teaching next semester, but I want to do it again. They keep me going.
0: Hats off to you and whatever other way I can say, wow, because you actually are helping people become better humans with these things that we've called soft skills, but they're really, I call them human skills. Like these are just Mm. how we show up, like how we show up for our lives. And it's the stuff, if you're, you know, if you're super fortunate, you might have an influential adult in your life somewhere when you're young that starts to teach you, but we all need serious reinforcement in that area. So, you know... Thank you for doing the work that you're doing because you're making better humans.
1: That means so much. Thank you.
0: All right, Darren. So finish these three statements. Better humans are.
1: Better humans are authentic.
0: Better work is.
1: Crafted by the worker.
0: And a better world has.
1: More people who are willing to get it wrong.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: This was incredible. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. That was Darren K. Roberts, founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas and top voice in sports. One big thing before we go, the deep end is not about living some crazy life that's not you. It's about envisioning who you really wanna be and choosing to expand into that, taking up the space that you're meant to. So figure out what your deep end is today and take a swim. Don't forget to follow Darren on LinkedIn for more weekly inspiration. If today's episode made you feel inspired and even a little braver, leave us a rating before you go. And more helpful, write a quick review. It helps other listeners like you find this show and grow with our community. And you can always find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. This episode was produced by the amazing LinkedIn Media production team, with help from Michelle O'Brien and Franz Bowen. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I'll see you next week.